This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Today, I am pleased to welcome two of our students from the Global Health Science Graduate Program. Jane Fieldhouse is a PhD candidate in Global Health Sciences and a graduate student researcher at the University of California at Davis. She will actually defend her dissertation in October. Jane's background is one in is in one health with a focus on epidemic prevention, preparedness, and response. She conducted her mixed methods dissertation research on outbreak timeliness in Uganda, and will, as I mentioned, will be graduating um, in October. Our second speaker will be Dr. Kenise Christian, who recently defended her dissertation in Global Health Sciences at UCSF. Yay, Dr. Christian. Kenise's dissertation was focused on HIV and TB prevention in Uganda. So with that, I am going to turn it over. All right. And good evening to everyone. Thank you so much for joining today. As mentioned in that introduction, I do have the privilege and somewhat unique perspective of working across two of the University of California institutions. So University of California, San Francisco, and the University of California at Davis. And at both institutions, I work with diverse teams of experts, many of whom are infectious disease epidemiologists, though at UCSF, we tend to focus largely on human health. And of course, at the University of California at Davis, there is a large focus on animal health, of course, given the School of Veterinary Medicine. So my global health research interest is in epidemic and pandemic preparedness with a focus on diseases emerging at the human-animal interface, which is where the collective and collaborative One Health approach comes in. So for the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to dive into the topic of One Health. Um, But before I do that, I thought I would quickly touch on what global health is. And these are some of the more traditional definitions of global health. Both of these highlight improving health and achieving health equity, for all through a collaborative transnational effort. Um, But in my own words, I would say that global health, similarly to public health, really does focus on improving population level health by preventing disease and reducing the burden of disease for populations. But in global health, the level of our analysis really focuses on the whole world instead of just the the health of, of a population within one country. And so therefore, we tend to think about the relationships of interdependence between populations of the world. And so at the heart of this definition of global health as an area of study, research, and practice, um, we really do need to recognize that because we humans and our communities are all interconnected um, across the globe, so too are our health problems. And so according to the UN, We just surpassed a global population of 8 billion in November of 2022. And as our global population soars, we are increasingly coming upon challenges 
that are more and more complex and intractable. And so some examples of these problems include, of course, climate change, um, issues of food safety and food sustainability, antimicrobial resistance is one that keeps me up at night, and then, of course, um, infectious diseases, and that includes zoonoses. So zoonoses are diseases that are transmitted between humans and animals and vice versa. It's a two-way street, um, as well as vector-borne diseases. So those are pathogens that are transmitted to people or animals through the bite of a vector, um, an arthropod such as a mosquito, a tick, a flea, etc., and then that causes illness. And then unfortunately, there are also is the threat of deliberately emerging infectious diseases, which we saw an example of back in 2001 with the anthrax bioterrorist event in Washington, D.C. And so in today's society where the time required for global travel has rapidly decreased, we're acutely aware, as exemplified by COVID-19, that these problems are not isolated issues. And so we must consider that a disease emerging in one corner of the world has the potential to affect the entire international community very quickly. And this is a graph here of um, comparing the global population with the amount of time that it takes to circumnavigate the globe. And this is from Frederick Murphy and Neil Nathanson published back in 1994. And so even though that's quite dated, it shows that we've known for quite some time now that as our global population soars, we're coming into contact with one another around the world at an incredibly rapid pace. And so today in 2023, of course, the speed of international travel has decreased to essentially zero. It takes humans as well as animals virtually no time to travel around the world. And I think a lot of reprints of this graph actually remove this dams trend line, but I think it's important to keep in there because it's a nice reminder that over time, man-made manipulation of the environment has also increased. And that's another key component and a key consideration when thinking about the health of humans, animals, and our ecosystems. And so this is really the crux of where the One Health approach really lies. So by definition, One Health is a collaborative, multi-sectoral, and transdisciplinary approach working at local, regional, national, and global levels to achieve optimal health and well-being outcomes, recognizing the interconnections between people, animals, plants, and their shared environments. And historically, One Health really did focus on um, the intersection of human, animal, and environmental health, but more recently, we are recognizing that plants occupy their own distinct role um, that's distinct from the environment and those plant pathogen interactions do have direct consequences for both humans and animals. So here on the left-hand side, we see some of the drivers of those One Health problems. Um, so several of these I've mentioned, um, including changing land use, uh, globalization, but there are drivers including migration, of course, including forced migration, um, due to environmental or societal factors such as armed conflict or famine. And then simultaneously, there are influences such as culture, policy, um, behavior, and education that working alongside these drivers are resulting in these really complex problems that we must use a collaborative One Health approach, working at not just the local, not the, just the regional, but really at the global level to address. And we had compelling evidence of the need to leverage a One Health approach even before 
the COVID-19 pandemic. The reality is we are quite vulnerable to outbreaks that involve multiple One Health sectors. So this is a timeline of One Health outbreaks occurring over the past two decades. Um, and this is not exhaustive, but it nicely depicts that multi-sectoral outbreaks or outbreaks involving two or more of the One Health sectors I mentioned, including those that are caused by um, zoonotic viruses, are capable of growing to become epidemics or even pandemics. And in fact, outbreaks of epidemic potential are now increasing in frequency in large part due to those human behaviors that I just described, um, which are driving increased opportunities for spillover of pathogens from animals into human populations. So that was kind of a crash course on what the One Health approach is. And so for the next few minutes, I thought I would just highlight my area of research, which also leverages a One Health approach for epidemic preparedness. Um, and I'm sure you are all aware that in light of COVID-19, there have been a plethora of studies and analyses of what went wrong and in the rare instance, what we did get right. Um, but where there are an endless number of lessons to be learned from COVID-19, there are also a number of lessons to be learned from other outbreaks of diseases that are occurring on a smaller scale and in more geographically limited and isolated areas. And those are happening on a daily basis around the globe. Um, and they're not just causing significant morbidity and mortality, but they're also exacting a socioeconomic toll on some of the most vulnerable populations. And as mentioned, I conducted my dissertation research in Uganda in collaboration with Mokere University's Infectious Diseases Institute and the Ministry of Health's Public Health Emergency Operations Center. Um, and Uganda has embraced a One Health approach to epidemic preparedness, which is optimal given that the prevalent risk of emerging infectious diseases in the country is high and, of course, a lot of um, viral zoonotic diseases as well. And so my research focuses on outbreak timeliness metrics or the time intervals between key events that happen during outbreaks. And in an outbreak, our bottom line, our, our overall objective is to avert cases and to avert fatalities in human populations and in animal populations. And so the faster we respond to an outbreak, the greater a window of an opportunity we have to get that outbreak under control and to save lives. So what does this look like in practice? Um, and what do timeliness metrics have to do with it? So um, I'm going to walk through an example of an outbreak now of anthrax. And photographed in the background were some cattle that are grazing in southwestern Uganda um, on the right-hand side is Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. It's a natural national park that buttresses right up um, against land that's being used for agricultural purposes. And in Uganda, there are outbreaks of anthrax on a pretty much annual basis. Anthrax is a spore-forming bacterium, and it occurs naturally in the soil. And so when those spores are ingested by ruminants, so grazing animals, it causes acute mortality in the animal, um, so sudden death within two to three hours. And so this would be the start of an outbreak. When that cow ingests the anthrax spores, it dies. Anthrax is a zoonotic disease, so it can be transmitted to humans. And unfortunately, when livestock dies, um, no matter the cause, 
Unfortunately, households in Uganda may not be able to absorb the economic loss or the financial loss from that cow dying. So the cow might be butchered and then consumed or sold in the um, in the market um, and be distributed more widely among the community members. And so in that process of butchering the cow, the individual who's conducting that um, is exposed to, of course, the, the blood of the cow that can cause cutaneous anthrax, so lesions on the skin. And then if it's raw and it's undercooked and it's consumed, that can lead to gastrointestinal anthrax and a whole host of um, symptoms. And so in either instance, that's going to lead to those humans who have been exposed to fall ill um, and needing to seek medical attention. And so if they arrive at a health center where staff are trained to identify cases of a priority disease because anthrax is a priority disease, then that will be flagged in the system. And that will be the first time that the outbreak has really been detected within the healthcare system. So then, and it can be detected other ways. It's not to say it has to go through the healthcare system. Sometimes there are rumors about cow die-offs, or I've seen outbreak reports where medical teams have learned about an outbreak because of chatter on a talk on a radio show. Um, but for the purposes of this example, we'll just say that this index case, the gentleman who slaughtered the cow has arrived at a health facility and the clinician who suspects it's anthrax. And so she goes ahead and notifies the district health officer. Um, the district health officer is hopefully in communication with the district veterinary officer. At this point, they may notify the regional or the national public health emergency operations center. And from there, the investigation and the response really snowballs. So first they may mobilize the district task force to go investigate and verify that this suspect outbreak is actually occurring. They will follow up with the index case, investigate other cases within the community. This is where contact tracing would happen, for instance, if the, the meat had been sold in the market. And during that field investigation, the team would also take biospecimens, both samples from the carcass of the cow, if available, and from the humans. And then those are shipped off to a laboratory for diagnostic confirmation. And realistically, a response should or may be mounted even before that diagnostic confirmation comes back if it is a suspected outbreak. And so the district task force might, for instance, close down that butcher if it is being sold um, in the market. They might um, distribute communication materials directly to the public, let them know about the outbreak, provide reminders about safe behaviors for cooking meat thoroughly to avoid touching animals that have died. And then eventually through these control measures and through community engagement, the anthrax outbreak is brought under control and it ends. And so these are some of the milestones or the key events that we are interested in tracking dates for so that we can calculate the time and days that passes between the respective events. But our team does also think that there are several other key and dates that should be tracked. So anthrax is an example of a disease that may have a predictive alert prior to the start of an outbreak. So for instance, we know that events such as landslides or heavy rains may result in soil being churned up and then those spores rise to the surface where they are more easily ingested by animals. So if we look for those predictive alerts, then we may have the opportunity to enact preventive responses. 
So for instance, we could heighten surveillance for an outbreak of anthrax following the landslide, or in theory, we could roll out um, an intervention. There is a vaccine for anthrax, although that would be quite expensive, and there are likely many uh, issues of access just given the sheer number of livestock in any given district in Uganda. And then lastly, um, in an outbreak such as this, where there are so many different sectors that need to be involved in order to mount a truly coordinated response, um, and that of course goes beyond just veterinarians and medical personnel, um, you might have needed medical or cultural anthropologists to help contribute to um, the risk communication materials for the engagement, um, laboratory teams, etc. Um, and so after the outbreak is over, um, the WHO, FAO, World Health Organization for Animals, um, we are all encouraging an after action review. And this is a meeting opportunity for all of the different actors from the different sectors to come together and review what went well and where there's room for improvement for future outbreaks. And so by tracking these dates between these 11 milestones, we can really assess outbreak detection and response time, but then also inform and optimize our future response. And so to back up and put some dates to this, if the grazing cow had ingested anthrax spores on May 1st, um, presumably it was it died shortly thereafter and was slaughtered, um, cutaneous anthrax has an incubation period of one to seven days. So let's just say that the farmer developed symptoms three days in, but maybe he didn't seek health um, care at the facility level until May 5th. Um, May 5th was a Friday. So maybe it takes until Monday in order for the health facility to contact the district health officer. The task force then conducts the field investigation the next week. They verify the sample, they ship this, the specimens off, but that doesn't, the confirmation doesn't come back until May 12th. The response is mounted and eventually the outbreak concludes on July 12th. This is not a bad scenario. This is four days between outbreak start and detect, seven days from detection to diagnostic confirmation and 72 days in total from the start to the end. And in fact, in an analysis that we did of 14 outbreaks of anthrax that occurred between 2018 and 2022 in Uganda, the median time from the outbreak start to the date of detection was four days. Um, the median time from detection to diagnostic was eight days. And then the median time from start to end was 88 days. So this is about on par with what we are seeing. Um, but let's go back to those predict and prevent milestones I mentioned. On April 28th, if the Regional Public Health Emergency Operations Center is alerted about landslides that are happening in the area, they can then reach out to and work with district health officers, with the district uh, veterinary officers, and say, hey, we need to heighten surveillance right now for anthrax. We know that this heavy rain happened. We know that these landslides are increasing the risk of an anthrax outbreak. Perhaps there's even some risk communication material that happens in there, um, alerting farmers, individuals working with cattle. Hey, if an animal dies, remember, we don't want to touch it. So I don't think we can prevent necessarily that cow from ingesting the anthrax spores on May 1st. That still is going to happen. But perhaps because that community engagement happened, that individual, that farmer, 
because they came into contact with the cow, maybe they seek care a couple days earlier, or maybe they don't touch the cow at all, or maybe they just let the, the district veterinary officer know, hey, I have a cow that died suddenly. And so ultimately, notification, verification, diagnostic confirmation, that can all happen a little bit earlier, a little faster. And the end result is fewer people are exposed to anthrax, perhaps no people at all. And the outbreak is brought under control in 42 days. This is an even better case scenario than the original. And we would still encourage that that after action review happen in order to assess the performance, perhaps use that as an opportunity to look at these timeliness metrics and discuss barriers and enablers. But ultimately, the idea is that these metrics can be used then as a tool to assess how are we doing during outbreaks? How can we do better? And then how can we ultimately move this end date up in order to save lives? So I'm going to stop there and turn it over to my colleague. Great. So um, today I'm going to be talking to you about my dissertation research that focused on HIV and TB prevention or tuberculosis prevention in Uganda. So I'm going to give you an overview of HIV and TB burden in the world um, and in Uganda before diving into the first chapter of my dissertation. Today I only have time to talk to you about the um, HIV prevention side. Um, so in overall, HIV and TB remain leading causes of death and disability across the globe. And when I say disability, I'm referring to becoming ill with um, TB and being able to not perform your normal tasks. And so HIV is actually the second leading cause of death from a single pathogen in the world, aside from the COVID-19 pandemic. And in 2021, there are about 40 million people living with HIV, and there are 1.5 million new HIV infections. Um, a little under 70% of all people living with HIV are living in Sub-Saharan Africa. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, adolescent girls and young women who are in the 15 to 24 age range account for 25% of new HIV cases, despite making up only 10% of the population. Um, and this is particularly disappointing, these 1.5 million new cases each year, uh, considering that HIV is fully preventable. So for someone who is HIV positive, they can take antiretroviral therapy or ART. Um, and this medication is very effective in suppressing the virus in someone's body, uh, the HIV virus in their body. And when the virus becomes uh, amount becomes so low because of this therapy, it is undetectable. So by you know um, using the most advanced uh, uh, diagnostic testing, uh, the HIV virus is not detectable in your blood anymore. And when it gets to that low by taking this antiretroviral therapy um, daily, then it is impossible for you to transmit the virus to others. And so that's why this um, phrase is referring to the undetectable equals untransmissible. And so HIV is fully preventable if someone is actively taking ART and then our antiretroviral therapy. But then there's also other options to reduce your own risk. The first being pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Um, and PrEP is a medication that someone can take daily if they know they're going to be at risk for contracting HIV. And HIV and PrEP reduces the risk of HIV by up to 99% when taken um, as directed. And then post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, is a medication that can be taken shortly after exposure to prevent infection if someone knows that they've been exposed. 
And um, PEP is greater than 90% effective in preventing HIV infection. Um, and so the, um, regardless of the fact that we have ARTs or antiretroviral therapy for people who are living with HIV, and then we have options for people who are at risk of HIV, um, HIV risk continues um, across the world and there are still ongoing um, new cases, as I mentioned before. Um, so in Uganda, that's where my research was conducted. Um, H the HIV burden in Uganda is about 5.2% among adults. Um, and Uganda has a population of about 46 million. So there are many people living with HIV in Uganda. Um, there are about, uh, when I first started my dissertation research, there were only 30,000 Ugandans taking PrEP. Um, and then as of more recent estimates in April, 2023, over 350,000 Ugandans were taking PrEP. And while this is a great improvement, given the size of the, um, the population in Uganda and the fact that there's a 5.2% uh, HIV prevalence among adults uh, in Uganda, clearly there's, there's more to be done here. And that's only a drop in the bucket in terms of who is at risk. So I wanted to, uh, to give you a little brief background on TB, even though I won't be talking about it too much in the, the rest of the talk. Um, so TB is actually the leading cause of death among people living with HIV. Um, and so it's important to talk about in the context of, of infectious disease prevention in Uganda. And TB is actually the leading cause of death from a single pathogen in the world, aside from the peak years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in 2021, about a quarter of the world's population are latently infected with TB. Um, and 10.6 million people became ill with TB or went from latent TB to active TB. And um, there are 1.6 million deaths from TB. And sadly, there's uh, isoniazid preventive therapy or IPT reduces active TB by up to 60% among people living with HIV. And considering the fact that TB is a leading cause of death of, of um, people living with HIV. Uh, this medication should get to everyone who needs it. And my second and third dissertation chapters that I'm not gonna be talking about today focused on scaling I IPT or isoniazid preventive therapy among adults living with HIV in Uganda. But that's a talk for another day. As I mentioned before, I'm just gonna be talking today about HIV prevention among youth. Um, and I wanted to start with a quick story. Um, consider a patient named Grace. She is a 19-year-old uh, woman living in rural southwestern Uganda. She is living in a polygamous marriage and has her husband has multiple wives. She's afraid of contracting HIV from her husband, but doesn't have the power in her relationship to change her husband's practices. The clinic is about an hour walk from her home, and she's afraid of what people may say when they see her there. And she's never heard of PrEP and doesn't know what that is or if that's an option for her. So with Grace in mind, I'm going to talk to you about an intervention that we designed to address the, the issues that someone like Grace faces in uh, preventing HIV. So to give you a background on HIV risk among youth, and when I say youth here, the definition that may not be used as colloquially, um, specifically talking about those age 15 to 24, so it's really um, young adults, but this is the youth definition according to um, the global health actors and is a universal definition among the WHO. So um, HIV risk is high among youth, especially in Uganda, and there are key targets for HIV prevention interventions in Sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at this table on the right side of the graph, uh, or the right side of the slide, excuse me, for those aged zero to 15 years old, in Uganda, the prevalence of HIV is about 0.4%. 
And um, among those age 15 to 24, women have an HIV prevalence about 2.6%, so it really jumps up there. And men have an HIV prevalence of about 1.1%. And as I mentioned before, the adult prevalence of HIV in Uganda is around 5%. And so you can see that this jump in HIV prevalence from the zero to 15 age range to the 15 to 24 age range is a big jump. And that you can see that females are, or women are um, at a higher risk of HIV compared to men in this age group. Um, and it's a really key area for us to be able to intervene to prevent HIV infection. So sadly, the uptake of PrEP and PEP, so those preventive medications for HIV, have been low among youth. And research has shown that some barriers to the uptake of PrEP and PEP include um, insufficient knowledge about these prevention options, so not really knowing, as I mentioned before with the case of Grace, never, never heard of PrEP as an option for them. Also, lack of access, so you know, living far from a clinic or not being able to um, to get to that clinic to get the medication, and then also stigma associated with taking um, HIV prevention medications. And then there's also structural factors associated with HIV risk, including poverty, low educational attainment, and lack of ge income generating opportunities or ways to make money. Um, and then interventions to address the lack of income generating opportunities include vocational training, so job training and microfinance or giving small loans to people to help them with generating income and entrepreneurship. Um, and these types of interventions have really shown promise in preventing HIV among youth. So for our study, we partnered with BRAC. BRAC is an um, international NGO with a mission to empower people and communities in situations of poverty, illiteracy, disease, and social injustice. BRAC operates clubs, um, over a thousand clubs actually, across Uganda that deliver the Empowerment and Livelihood for Adolescents curriculum, or ELA curriculum. Um, and this is a curriculum that uh, covers life skills, vocational training, and education on sexual and reproductive health. And these youth clubs that are, um, were assessed in a prior randomized trial over four years in Uganda uh, showed that over this four-year period, these clubs reduced youth pregnancy by 34%, showed a reduction in women reporting having sex against their will, showed a reduction in early marriage, an increase in self-employment, and positive impacts on economic and social empowerment. And so we asked ourselves, uh, would it be feasible to integrate HIV prevention, so these PrEP and PEP access, as well as HIV education, into these existing BRAC clubs that are teaching the ELA curriculum in Uganda? So on the last slide, I talked about how the BRAC clubs uh, teaching the ELA curriculum were effective in reducing um, teen pregnancy and all of these other great indicators and so then we were asking ourselves, okay, so these clubs are working and they're already in operation across Uganda. So can we add on HIV prevention um, to help prevent HIV among this high-risk group? So we did this by conducting a six-month pilot integrating HIV prevention into these existing BRAC clubs taught by peer mentors from the local community. And you can see here in this photo, this is a group of young men at one of the um, club meetings. Um, being taught part of the ELA curriculum by the um, by the peer mentor who's standing up in that photo. 
So we targeted men and women age 15 to 24 in Kibera Village, which is in rural southwestern Uganda. Jane and I have that in common. We spent a lot of time in um, southwestern Uganda. Um, sadly, not together, but we were hoping for some, some time together if we could. And um, uh, we conducted separate clubs for men and women that met three times per week over the six-month club period. And we covered a curriculum, um, the ELA curriculum, so that included life skills, vocational training, and sexual and reproductive health. And then we added HIV AIDS-specific curriculum, information on PrEP and PEP, um, and PrEP and PEP referrals at the local health center, on-site HIV testing, and a field trip to the local clinic. And so the vocational training was um, it generated a great turnout for club participants. Um, and we actually had some uh, many more people from the community come and uh, take part in the vocational trainings outside for those who are just enrolled in the clubs. Um, and we, so this is a photo of uh, making liquid soap. And then we also taught um, the women to how to sew reusable menstrual pads or afro pads. Um, and they were given the basic materials to create products that they could keep for themselves. And then also they could sell in the local villages. And so we asked ourselves, what we, what we wanted to ask ourselves was first, is this method feasible? So is it, um, are we able to integrate HIV prevention into these existing clubs? And then second, we wanted to assess if it was effective. Did this work um, for scaling uh, PrEP and PEP and then HIV knowledge? And so for the feasibility outcomes, so when we looked at trying to assess if this was feasible or not, we first assessed if the club was accepted by the community. We wanted to make sure if this was going to be successful in other settings, that um, it would be embraced by the community. And then we also sought to enroll um, 40 participants. And then we assessed club attendance as an indicator of club interest and club involvement. And then we also uh, wanted to assess the feasibility of delivering this HIV prevention education and services. Um, and the ability of the peer mentors who are leading these BRAC clubs uh, with the support of a local clinician to deliver the HIV curriculum and conduct the field trip to the local health center to see where the youth could um, receive care. And also the feasibility of delivering the onsite HIV testing and the referrals for PrEP and PEP. For the effectiveness outcomes, we wanted to look at um, first if the this um, intervention led to an increase in the use of PrEP and PEP by looking at the number of referrals to the local health center for PrEP and PEP among those who participated. And then we also wanted to look at HIV knowledge and self-reported um, risky sexual behavior change over the six-month period. Um, and so for the participant characteristics, we enrolled 42 participants. The mean age was about 20 years old. Um, slightly more women than men enrolled with 24 women and 18 men. 24% or 10 of the participants were currently enrolled in school, around 74% had dropped out of school, and one participant had never enrolled in school. And then attendance actually varied by educational status. So um, the overall number of mean number of visits to the club by all participants was 18. However, those who are currently enrolled in school attended the clubs way less than. Uh, those who had dropped out or never enrolled, where those who were currently enrolled in school attended the club four times on average, compared to 21 times among those dropped out of school and 55 times among those never enrolled in school, the one person who had never enrolled in school. 
And HIV prevalence at baseline, there were three participants who were HIV positive at baseline, uh, which is a 7.5% prevalence. And so when we assess the feasibility of, um, of conducting the um, integrating HIV prevention into the existing clubs, first, we conducted a community stakeholder meeting, which you can see a photo of on the slide. And the adults and community stakeholders agreed to have the youth club proceed in the community. And they were excited about having their youth be able to engage in this way. We had 42 club participants enroll, which actually amounted to 55% of the total youth in the community. Um, and on average, the youth attended the clubs one time per week. Um, HIV prevention curriculum was successfully covered over the study period. So we were able to introduce the HIV topics at one month and six months and cover all planned topics. And we had about 45% of the participants attended the field trip to the local clinic to see where they could go to receive care. And when we looked at the um, effectiveness results, I just have, we asked a series of questions on HIV not related knowledge. I'm just gonna be talking about three quick questions here. So the first question that we asked at baseline, so at the start of the study, and then again, at the end of the study, after six months, after we taught the HIV curriculum, um, when we asked the question, for a person infected with HIV, taking daily HIV medication under a doctor's care, controlling the virus and staying healthy can reduce his or her chances of passing HIV to his or her partner. 69% um, of the participants said true at baseline, and this is a true statement. And then 92% of the participants said yes, uh, said true at after six months after they were um, taught the HIV curriculum. So that was a 23% improvement. And then when we asked, um, have you ever heard of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP? 62% said yes at baseline and 93% said yes at follow-up. And then have you ever heard of PrEP or post-exposure prophylaxis? 52%, only about half of the participants had heard of PEP at baseline and 94% had heard of PEP by follow-up. Um, and then when we looked at the uptake of HIV testing um, and then PrEP and PEP, uh, from baseline to follow-up. We found that 57% of the participants were tested for HIV at baseline, 33% at follow-up. And then none of the participants accepted a PrEP, PrEP referral at baseline. And then 28% or five of the 18 eligible young women had started taking PrEP by the follow-up, by study follow-up. Um, and uh, interestingly, no young men had um, received a PrEP uh, referral over the study period. However, we did see one of the 17 eligible young men uh, received a, prep, a PEP referral by the end of the study. Um, we also saw a reduction over six months, we saw a reduction in self-reported risky sexual behaviors. The first, the proportion of sexually active participants reporting not using a condom during their most recent sexual intercourse 45% said they did not use a condom most recently at uh, baseline, and then only 26% said they had not used a condom at follow-up, so there was an improvement there. And we also saw a reduction in the proportion of sexually active young women reporting engaging in transactional sex, where at baseline, 65% of the young women, sexually active young women in the study reported engaging in transactional sex at baseline, and only 26% um, reported engaging in transactional sex at follow-up. So the study has limitations. Um, first, it was conducted in just one village. 
um, and um, as such should likely be tested in other areas and other regions in Uganda and other regions of the world where the BRAC ELA curriculum operates um, to make sure that these results would be um, transferable to other settings. Uh, second, the club is only conducted over six months, uh, which limits our ability to see how this would affect communities and youth um, and HIV risk over a long-term period. However, it does demonstrate some preliminary effectiveness and some exciting results. And so we definitely want to keep, um, keep studying this in, in different settings. And then next, um, the effectiveness measures relied on self-reported outcomes. And so when we say self-reported outcomes, it is that we are asking somebody to report on their behavior without double checking that in some other way. And so for this, I'm referring to us asking, um, for example, the condom use question. Um, and social desirability bias is actually um, when someone wants to give you the answer that you would like to hear. Um, and so this is something that we take into account in, in a lot of our research um, is the fact that there may be some underreporting of risky behavior where uh, participants may have been saying that they've been using condoms, but actually in reality are not um, if, if they are, um, if they're just trying to tell us the question, that, the answer that we want to hear. However, we did see this across, um, there was a, a quite a large uh, difference between baseline and follow-up, which indicates positive trends in that direction. And again, um, a larger study, a randomized study, uh, would give us a better idea of, um, if this, if bias was biasing the, the results at all. So in summary, um, we found that the integration of the BRAC-ELA curriculum with HIV prevention was feasible and that um, it demonstrated preliminary effectiveness in PrEP uptake among young women, PEP uptake among men, and increases in HIV-related knowledge. We also saw um, a reduction in self-reported risky sexual behaviors over the course of the study period. And um, most notably, we saw that attendance was high among those who had dropped out of school a uh, group at high, very high risk of HIV or particularly high risk of HIV is demonstrated in other research, which indicates that this um, type of intervention could be particularly beneficial for that group. And so in conclusion, and thinking about some potential implications and what next. So first, I think that we can leverage existing clubs such as the BRAC clubs to scale this HIV prevention services among youth using this pre-established BRAC-ELA platform, and that clubs that include vocational training and, and um, including the liquid soap making and sewing reusable menstrual pads may lead to demand generation by generating interest for the clubs, um, which may be a good way to introduce PrEP and PEP to this vulnerable population. And that providing PrEP and PEP within youth clubs that teach things other than just focusing on HIV and teaching um, life skills and vocational training may reduce stigma. So the clubs aren't associated with just HIV, they're associated with a lot of other um, fun activities, including playing sports and music um, and things like that. And then also uh, the vocational training and life skills. And then um, there are likely potential benefits outside of HIV prevention, including decreases in transactional sex, as I mentioned before, and decreases in condomless sex and the related risks associated with that, including unattended pregnancy and STI risk. And so now um, we are open for questions.
All right, um, Kenise and Jane, thank you very much. Every time I listen to, to students, I am more and more impressed. So thank you for that. Um, uh, Jane, let me start with you. You, you talked about um, predictive alerts, and 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 I wonder if there is an established sort of does does predictive alerts occur for every potential? Are there predictive alerts for every potential pandemic? And, and, and let me let me let me just okay. ask. Uh, plus one. The plus one is like, what are the predictive, what were the predictive alerts for COVID? The short answer is no, not every outbreak has um, a potential for a predictive alert. And then there are outbreaks that do have a potential and then still do not. So a lot of um, the work that is being done in this area, for instance, um, we know that flooding leads to increased mosquito activity. So a lot of vector-borne illnesses, a great example being Rift Valley fever, which is a viral hemorrhagic fever. Um, there's work being done to actually work in terms of um, uh, meteorological like prediction of increased rainfall. If it's rainfall that is not seasonal, so outside of when you would typically expect to see the large rain, arrive, um, then we know to be on the lookout for increased mosquito activity because those mosquitoes need that water in order to breed. And then that's when there, there may be an outbreak um, and we have that window of increased surveillance and an opportunity um, to, to enact interventions um, that could potentially curb an outbreak. Um, but that's not to say, again, so it's not that there's a landslide before every outbreak of anthrax, unfortunately. Um, but it is our belief that if it is possible to get ahead of these outbreaks, if it is possible to buy us a couple of extra days just because of that increased surveillance, um, that it's worth every effort um, to really look into all possible predictive alerts um, and then enact those those responses. COVID-19, there really wasn't. Um, I think we know um, the mechanisms by which spillover events happen, right, from um, an animal to a human. And so we have to be conducting um, really applied epidemiological studies, almost looking for influenza-like illnesses and pneumonia in environments where there is intense interaction between humans and animals. Um, but that's not to say that there was going to be a predictive alert or that we could, we could have caught that um, and done anything to enact interventions other than, of course, those um, safe practices um, that, we can, that we can do in environments like live animal markets. Right. I, I got a follow-up question, but I have an audience question first. Um, what has been the impact of working in a country with a history of corruption? Do leaders help or impede your work? So I'll I'll take this first, but I think Kenny certainly could weigh in here as well. Um, in Uganda, we have been I have been very welcomed by all of my collaborators, and I'm working with the Ministry of Health. 
um, at the Public Health Emergency Operations Center, but also working with the Ministry of Agriculture, working with the Ministry of, of um, the Environment. So I think I have not personally felt any, any kind of effects um, due to the corruption. I would say that that sometimes in the line of work that we're doing, so for instance, looking into bottlenecks and enablers to rapid detection and response of, of an outbreak, sometimes we might hear um, conversation about, um, about corruption, but, but I would actually say that, um, you know, the U.S. is a great example of, of things are not always done um, according to the book. And, and I think that we have a lot of introspection that we can do here in the United States about how um, work, about how finances are, are being utilized. And I think um, it's a good question for working in global health. But but no, I have not felt any of those, those effects. I definitely I agree with Jane that I've heard you know, you hear whispers of corruption, um, but it definitely has not impeded my work at all. I think there's, um, you know, with my TV work in particular, we worked with district health officers um, and um, and so the kind of mid-level managers in the health system in Uganda. And I think one of the key ways that we were able to operate effectively was to not come at this from a top-down approach, our research from a top-down approach would actually work with these these political leaders to make sure that you know we could get the buy-in from communities and make sure that we're doing things effectively and um, and answering the you know helping in the way that they see most fit. And so I think that is one way um, that that's a helpful way to kind of um, to work with political leaders. But yeah, I definitely don't think that corruption um, impeded my my work at all. Okay. Um... Just, just out of curiosity, why, why Uganda? I can start at least for my my um, my work. Uh, there's uh, my research group has been working with um, and has partners at the um, IDRC, which is the uh, Infectious Diseases Research Collaboration in Uganda, um, and collaborations with professors at Makerere University. And I think UCSF as a whole, as you saw, Jane also does work with Makerere University. Um, has a bunch of really close ties with research groups um, in Uganda. And um, so it, it, yeah, so I think a lot of my research um, in the uh, Division of HIV Infectious Diseases and Global Medicine Department at UCSF does a lot of work with, um, with, with in Uganda and um, in part just beca because of those collaborations. But then also there is a high HIV burden, there's high TB burden, as Jane mentioned, there's a high um, you know, zoonotic disease uh, uh, outbreak work to be done there as well. So I think um, that all of those parts. Jane, did um, same answer. Jane, same answer. Basically. Yeah, I would just say, you know, I, I briefly touched on this, but Uganda has a really rich ecosystem. They have um, a growing human population also, which results in an increased demand for agriculture, um, and so there's encroachment into wildlife areas and, and ecosystem habitats. And so those human behaviors are leading to increased risk of spillover. Um, you may have heard about uh, even Wendy in that picture I had um, Uganda and even some of the surrounding countries, Rwanda, et cetera, um, 
They have gorillas that tourists come on an annual basis to go in or to, to go see. And even though you're not interacting with them, you are close to them. So there's work being done there to make sure that there are no zoonotic diseases being transmitted from humans to the gorillas. Um, and so Uganda has really done a phenomenal job of embracing the One Health approach just because they see the value of it. Um, and they have a national One Health platform and the government has gotten behind it. But um, importantly, so have community members at the local level, the, the national level, um, and, and hopefully the global level with our collaboration through UCSF and other universities and institutions. All right. I thank you. I have another audience question. This is just delightful to ask. Dr. Christian, doesn't that sound good? Dr. Christian, why do you think that female participants only use PrEP and male only use PEP? Um, we thought about this a lot. And I think first, just to say, you know, there's no real way to know without doing further study. And I think it'd be interesting um, to use a mixed methods approach, which um, would use quantitative and then qualitative interviews. So ask survey questions, but then also just interview participants and ask them about their preferences and kind of get to the bottom of this. But um, to speculate, I think that um, women, you know, PrEP gives women the option to take power into their own hands. Um, I think my mom recently mentioned the use, the, the advent of the birth control pill and how that gave women the option to, um, to prevent pregnancy themselves. And I think that PrEP kind of goes along those lines as giving women the power to choose um, to, to take measures to protect themselves against HIV. Um, and so I think that that's one, one aspect. I think men, um, they're also, we also did see a, uh, an increase in condom use among all participants. And so there's a chance that men started using condoms instead of taking PrEP because they could choose or maybe have more power in their relationships to use condoms over, um, over using pro prophylactic medications. Um, yeah, so I think that the, either some of those, some of those thoughts, but um, again, further study would need, be, need, need to be done to really get to the bottom of it. I have another question. So I noticed on the chart you showed, um, um, I think it was talking about prevalence um, within the population. Um, the, the prevalence at birth from birth to 15 was like 0.4%. Is it, was it prevalence? It was prevalence? Yes. And 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 the adult uh, prevalence is like five point two. So so I guess there is little transmission at birth. Is that what that means? Yes, there's some uh, maybe from um, yeah from from uh, breastfeeding. There's some there's small risk, and then also from birth. Um, but Uganda has done a great job of preventing mother to child transmission. So those rates have gone down, um, but there is some. Um, transmission at younger ages. Yeah. I, I, I found that to be a wonderful looking number. I know nothing mm -hmm. about Uganda, but I'm like mm -hmm. 4% in a country mm -hmm. that has a high prevalence of HIV. That's actually mm -hmm. pretty darn good. So yeah. Yeah. That, that, that I think is, is, is hopeful. Um, so, so when I looked at what, what, as I was looking at your tables, so two things about the BRAC, the, the first of all, um, that people were willing to go. That's something that they were already engaging in, which which is a good 
place to start. But but I also noticed that the, the people who were not going to school, I'm not sure what that means, but the people who were not going to school were more likely to engage in the intervention. Can you unpack that for us? Honestly, it's a place to learn. You you saw from the photo of the boys club that it was a packed house. You know, it's, yep. this, yep. it's this little space and people are cramped on the floor. Um, and there wasn't, uh, you know, it's not like we, we didn't pr- really provide anything other than learning. And I think, um, as you can see, the one student who had never enrolled in school, either due to school fees or distance to the school or whatever, whatever reason, um, he's that participant, um, you know, attended the club 55 times out of 60 potential mm-hmm. attendants. So it's really, um, I think, uh, a, a place to learn. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the life skills things too, and, and having to learn how to, con- you know, conduct yourself um, in, um, and, and, and like empowerment type, um, and how to stand up for yourself and how to say no, and how to advocate for yourself and those types of trainings. I think, there was a real thirst for it, even when it wasn't just uh, the the vocational training. I think there's a thirst for the life skills training. I think people are interested in learning about health. I think a lot of these health topics aren't covered in school, um, even among those who go to school, and they're interested in learning more about this. You know, we cover topics like on, on menstruation and childbirth and, and all of these topics that maybe people didn't have an opportunity to learn at elsewhere. Um, but we also made the clubs fun to go to outside of just the, the learning part. The clubs went for about two hours and half of it was didactic learning. And then half of it was playing music and music and sports. Um, we also, they also, the club participants put on a play for one week where they all, all put together, um, different costumes and, um, put on a little show. And, uh, there was a photo of dancing on the first slide, um, from my talk. And so, you know, there's, it was a fun place to be, which I think, um, which I think, you know, is a great way to engage youth and particularly in that age age range, engage them in care and get them excited about um, participating. And then that brings the, you know, the opportunity to then introduce HIV prevention as um, a way to, in a non-stigmatized, non-medical setting. Well, ladies, this was delightful. Thank you very much. Um, Really intriguing, really fascinating research. Um, thank you so much for all the work you've done. Thank you for making us better people and a better, this a better place to live. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.